The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Here we were, just trying to have a good time, celebrating the holidays, and you had to start talking about poor people? Way to kill the mood. Okay, that's a much more obnoxious version of a basic textual question the rabbis are asking this week. Parshat Emor contains the first full list of the holidays, starting with Shabbat, and then moving from Passover on through the whole of what is now the Jewish calendar year. Given the centrality of these holidays in Jewish life and practice, this is a big moment in the Torah. But right in the middle of it all, in between Shavuot and Rosh Hashanah, there's a major interruption. And when you reap the harvest of your land, the Torah says, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger, le'ani v'lager tazovotam, I am the Lord your God. Now, this just comes out of nowhere. Not that these laws are unfamiliar to us, mind you. We actually saw them in last week's Parsha. But there they made sense. They appeared in a long list of laws, sometimes referred to as the holiness code. So, that's one way to be holy, feed the poor. Okay, that, that makes some sense. But why do we need to repeat them here? And more perplexing, why is it the only law that gets stuck right in the middle of the holidays? So that's what all the rabbis want to know. The most straightforward answer comes from the Ibn Ezra. He points out that these verses are right on the heels of the holiday we now call Shavuot. Today, it's celebrated primarily as the day the Torah was given, but in the Torah, it was described as the Harvest Festival. So, while we're on the subject of harvest, we might as well mention all the harvest-related laws. And then the Ibn Ezra adds another important consideration. The reason for mentioning when you reap the harvest of your land a second time is that the festival of Shavuot is the day of bringing the first harvest of wheat. So the Torah warns you not to forget what you were commanded to do on harvest days. So it isn't just that both Shavuot and the gifts to the poor are harvest-related laws. There's also an implicit worry that you'll be so caught up in the holiday that you'll fail to attend to your regular harvest donations. In the exhilarating rush of national celebration, there's a danger of forgetting the most needy in the community. And for them, it's just another day of trying to get by. What right do we have to be celebrating while people around us are starving? So there's a pause in our listing of the calendar laws to indicate that 
Just so, we ought to take time out of our actual holiday observance to make sure the poor are fed. Writing nearly a thousand years later, Rabbi Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, Latvia, who was born in the 19th century but lived into the early 20th century, he writes in his masterful commentary, the Meshechachma, also worrying that we will forget the poor. But his reasoning is much more theologically driven. Because where the Ibn Ezra drew on the harvest themes of the Shavuot festival, the Meshechachma focuses instead on its commemoration of the giving of the Torah, the revelation at Mount Sinai. He says, we must know that the giving of the Torah on Shavuot was not only for the religious rituals, lo haya rakala chukim, but also for the most reasonable practices, hanimusim hamuskalim, such as kindness to the poor and the stranger. For without faith in God, the human being becomes like a savage beast, showing no pity or respect to even his own parents. Therefore, it says that on the festival of Shavuot, you should celebrate the giving of the Torah, not just for the religious rituals, but also for the rational precepts, hamusagim basechel, such as this one about the harvest. For they too are only made possible because I am the Lord your God. Okay, this, this piece is staggering in a couple of ways. First of all, because it contains an extremely pessimistic view of human nature that left to our own devices, we devolve into cruelty and selfishness. But he's also making a radical theological claim, which is that without faith in God, there's no stable foundation for basic social ethics. Now, is this really true? Don't we know all kinds of secular social systems that have elaborate codes of law that maintain social order and enforce standards of moral decency? Most modern states manage pretty effectively to outlaw murder and theft without any particular reference to God. But the Meshechachma's thesis isn't just challenged by contemporary political counterexamples. He also seems to be directly refuting a classic Jewish legal principle, the distinction between two types of Torah law, chukim, which are particularistic and sometimes mysterious religious rituals, and mishpatim, rational laws enforcing objective principles of justice. So here's Maimonides explaining these two very different categories. The mishpatim are commandments whose reasons are obvious, shetaman galui, and the benefit of their being performed in this world is known such as the prohibition against stealing and murder and honoring one's father and mother. The chukim are those commandments whose reasons are unknown. Our sages have said, I ordain decrees and you have no license to question them. A person's natural inclination questions them and the nations of the world challenge them. For example, the prohibition of the meat of a pig or of mixing milk and meat, the calf whose neck is broken, the red heifer, and the goat sent to Azazel. 
In other words, Maimonides is saying, it's only the seemingly arbitrary ritualistic laws that would lose their binding force without reference to faith in God. If I don't believe in God, there's no point in avoiding cheeseburgers or burning sacrifices. But the rational laws of the Torah are precisely the ones that need no divine justification. They would be naturally arrived at by any civilization that sought to form a just and workable society. As the Talmud puts it, If they had not been written, justice would demand that they should be written. So what is the Meshechachma talking about when he says that not just the religious rituals, the, the chukim, but even the reasonable practices in society require faith in God? The only way to resolve this seeming contradiction between traditional Jewish legal theory and the Meshechachma's formula is to assume that he's actually proposing a third category of laws. That is, there are chukim, these mysterious religious rituals. There are mishpatim, reasonable laws that would naturally be adopted by any just society. And then there are these nimusim muskalim, reasonable practices, what we might call common decency, practices that everyone would admit are good and just, but that are not naturally adopted by a society and will only be compelled through faith in some external moral commitment. How does this work? A social collective forms with no particular moral code. They seek to establish laws that everyone can agree on that will maintain order and safety. They quickly outlaw all extreme forms of violence, create property rights and enforce contracts. These forms of justice require no higher faith, only the mutual interests that form a social contract. Because nobody wants to live in fear of murder or theft. But what these social contracts do not inevitably deal with is care for the most needy or vulnerable members of society. They don't necessarily legislate care for the poor because not everybody is poor. So not everybody agrees that this is a necessary investment. And if not everyone, or at least a sizable majority agrees, then in a legal system based on social contract, we can't obligate compliance. So charity comes to be thought of as completely voluntary. Mind you, everybody agrees that charity is good and just. Everybody recognizes that feeding the hungry is a, a wonderfully noble thing to do. But they think nobody can be forced to do it. And so, in time, nobody does it. People speak of poverty with eloquence and compassion, but nobody actually gives to the poor. It's a situation reminiscent of words written by another great 20th century rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, in a telegram he sent to President Kennedy in the midst of the civil rights movement of the 60s. And you'll hear it's in the fragmented language of a telegram. I look forward to privilege of being present at meeting tomorrow at 4 p.m. Likelihood exists that Negro problem will be like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. 
Please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declaration. We forfeit the right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. Churches, synagogues have failed. They must repent. Ask of religious leaders to call for national repentance and personal sacrifice. Let religious leaders donate one month's salary toward fund for Negro housing and education. I propose that you, Mr. President, declare a state of moral emergency. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Racism, like poverty, is one of those social ills we can condemn with our reason, but leave completely unattended by our laws. We build up a great society, so orderly and so civilized, but the most vulnerable are left to fend for themselves. This is what the Meshechachma was worried about when he warned of the savage beast that we could too easily become. And that's why he believed that we needed God to help us turn charity from an option into an obligation. And Heschel too saw religious faith as a force for compelling social action and the worship of God as all bound up in the preservation of human dignity. So perhaps that's what the Torah is worried about as well when it disrupts the serene flow of our journey through sacred time with an abrupt reminder of the hungry poor. For what do our holidays amount to if we only see them as a set of festive rituals and synagogue gatherings? How well will our Shavuot be observed if we forget that the Torah that we're celebrating not only prescribes religious ritual, but commands social justice? These sacred festivals are summoning us not only to worship, but to national repentance and personal sacrifice. God has declared a state of moral emergency. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom. And our theme song is Pitchouli by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week. Thank you.